I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm your co-host, Matt Bernico, and I have a cold. And I'm your other co-host, Dean Delaf, and I don't have a cold, but I am very tired. <laughs> Great. Well, I think we're, <laughs> we're on an even playing field, then. <laughs> I think so. Between the two of us, we make up exactly one healthy, functioning person. <laughs> I hope so. At least 75% of a functioning person. <laughs> Well, this week on the Magnificast, um, we're going to do our best to be, to be two functioning people, and we're here celebrating the feast day of St. Oscar Romero. You might know him. You might have heard of him. Romero's feast day is officially celebrated on March 24th, and we've talked about him a handful of times on this podcast, uh, but we're going to do it again. Specifically in the past, you can go check out our episode with Matt Eisenbrandt called The Assassination of a Saint, where we talk about Romero's death and the legal issues around it. It's a very good episode mm-hmm. and the assassination of a saint matt eisenbrandt's book is good you should go read it it's it's a classic and it's gonna make you mad for sure if you like listening to uh true crime podcasts this book is for you it's a true crime, a true crime book about the assassination of oscar romero man um, actually wait a second side note about that though before we get to romero um yeah please there is uh it's a great book for sure it's also great if you're like a law nerd and you want to learn about why um why murderers don't get prosecuted in the global South and how hard it is to take them to justice in the global North. It's a, it's a great book. Um, also side note though, I couldn't help but think of Romero when I recently watched a great HBO documentary from 2020 recently called, um, uh, the art of political murder, which is about the assassination of Bishop Girardi in Guatemala. And I want to bring it up now because I probably will forget to do it later. (laughs) But I think um, Girardi is also a very interesting character. And on the feast day of San Oscar Romero, I just think it's a it's like a great documentary if you're looking for other media sort of around issues of, you know, bishops in Latin America who are killed because of their moral stand. Anyway, a bit of a sidebar. But like I said, if I didn't bring it up now, it wouldn't it wouldn't make it to my brain later on. No, it's good. It's good to bring it up now. If you're a person who is interested in um, the CIA-backed assassination of many Catholic priests, boy, do I have some interesting things to tell you. <laughs> so, some troubling news for you about a whole genre of media that you're going to be interested in. <laughs> so in this episode, though, we are going to talk about um, – we'll talk about Romero. We'll talk about his death here in a minute, his assassination, because it's an important part of the story. But we're going to, uh, maybe more importantly, talk about Romero's thoughts on uh, the relationship between Christianity and politics – in an address that he gave at the University of Louisville, which is in Belgium, of all places. The the address was called The Political Dimension of Faith from the Perspective of the Option for the Poor. But before we get to the words of Romero himself, uh, here's a bit of biographical information about him. Dean, do you want to do the biographical information? Or we can switch off if you want. Yeah, that sounds great. Um, Oscar Romero, he was a bishop and later the Archbishop of San Salvador in El Salvador. And today, a lot of people associate him closely with liberation theology, which I think is probably not exactly right. He went out of his way to distance himself a little bit, but also not exactly wrong either. Um, Liberation theologians are very into Romero. There's obviously a shared spirit there. Anyway, neither here nor there. Um, At the same time, when he was uh, made the Archbishop of San Salvador, he was actually a more moderate or even conservative choice. So the Vatican has a habit of uh, appointing bishops in significant sees or dioceses 
uh, in politically tense situations that sort of won't upset the political uh, reality. And unfortunately, too, in the latter half of the 20th century, there were lots of examples of the Vatican appointing bishops in countries with dictatorships, like in El Salvador at this time, who would, you know, not be a radical leftist or something, but just kind of like keep the wheels on the tracks of the church going through a hard time. And the assumption was that Romero would be like that, that he would be a chill, conservative bishop. He was already a conservative guy, but uh, he had a pretty profound experience, um, a few anyway, that slowly turned him in a different direction. The assassination of a guy named Rutillo Grande, who's also a saint now, um, a priest, and he was a close friend of Romero's in 1977, had a really profound impact on Romero. And after that killing, uh, Romero took up a, a similar theological and political position toward the poor and toward liberation, which uh, Grande was kind of like urging Romero to do. But Romero had some cold feet. That story is sometimes contested, too, in the literature. Like some people are like, uh, Romero actually was sort of already making his his own kind of journey in this direction, and the assassination of uh, Grande was just like, I don't know, it wasn't like the catalytic moment, it was just like an important sure. moment. Um, but anyway, that's for scholars, I guess, to figure out. In any case, it is important because, nevertheless, whatever the truth of that is, uh, Romero and Grande both are celebrated in El Salvador, along with many other martyrs. Um, including people we've talked about in the show elsewhere, uh, like uh, Ignacio A. Curia, for example, and many others. Um, anyway, the point here is Romero was expected to be, a, a, you know, a basic sort of run-of-the-mill conservative bishop in one of the most important dioceses in uh, in El Salvador in the middle of a pretty brutal situation. And instead, he turned to a champion of the poor delivering homilies on the radio uh, really becoming a uh, a guy who wasn't afraid to call out human rights abuses and violence um, from his position as a, a moral authority. That's right. He was supposed to be a basic archbishop, but really, he was a based archbishop. Oh. All right. So that that's like maybe the first part <laughs> of the story. The second important part of the story that you got to know is that in El Salvador at the time, uh, political tensions had been on the rise. For, for a while, to say the least. Um, but a military coup that was staged in October 1979 kicked off what's basically a full-on civil war that would last until 1992. Um, during the time, there was a wave of political violence caused by numerous right-wing paramilitary organizations. Perhaps unsurprisingly, the United States, uh, led by then Jimmy Carter, supported the right-wing government, uh, lest El Salvador become like Nicaragua or Cuba, uh, Romero even wrote a letter to Jimmy Carter saying that the U.S.'s endorsement and military aid to the government would definitely sharpen the political persecution and violence in the country. And Romero was right. And um, uh, Jimmy Carter would go on to regret it later, as Dean told told me before this conversation. <laughs> I was mad about Jimmy Carter, and Dean told me that he regretted it. And I'm still mad about Jimmy Carter. Um, that's okay, though. Anyways, the Catholic Church in El Salvador more or less took the side of the poor, which is kind of an interesting turn, who were facing some pretty intense repression from the government, uh, and the clergy and lay people in base communities basically all suffered because of it. Um, here's a quote from the uh, the address that we're going to read here in a minute uh, that Romero wrote that just kind of lays out the persecution that the church in El Salvador faced, and I think it's uh, pretty serious. So Romero says, in less than three years, more than 50 priests have been attacked, threatened, calumniated. Six are already martyrs. They were murdered. Some have been tortured and others have been expelled from the country. Nuns have also been persecuted. The archdiocesan radio station and educational institutions that are Catholic or of a Christian inspiration have also been attacked, threatened, intimidated, and even bombed. So um, I think it's interesting to, to note that because, uh, let's see, I, I guess when, when I say that there's like, political persecution of the Catholic Church in El Salvador, I want to make a pretty hard distinction that it's not like the political persecution that people on the right <laughs> say they face today. Mm -hmm. It's like real, actual political persecution. And I think it's important to kind of lay it out because, um, I mean, it just, you got to be real about it, I think. In, in a time where people feign all kinds of persecution, it's mm -hmm. like good to um, be reminded that there are people who have actually faced real um, <laughs> real threats and not not made up ones from the woke mob. Um, <laughs> Romero himself, though, uh, he would be amongst those uh, those victims of political persecution who was executed, uh, I guess, assassinated by a right-wing death squad 
who is directed by uh, the U.S. trained Robert Dabusson. You'll hear a lot about if you go listen to the episode about uh, uh, the assassination of a saint. Um, anyways, he was assassinated while he gave mass, like in the middle of church uh, mm-hmm. on March 24th, 1980. Uh, a pretty horrific scene. So people got out of a car, they shot him, and then they drove right away. So that is, that's Oscar Romero in a nutshell. A very, a very tiny nutshell. Um, but we'll, we'll kind of get into more of the character of him as a political and theological thinker here in just a minute. Yeah, I think it's also helpful to plot where this address fits in some of the events we were just talking about. Um, You know, Romero had this conversion to social justice or to being a voice for the poor, but he was not a bishop very long. And it's pretty remarkable the level of intensity and the speed at which all these things we were just mentioning kind of happen in succession. So, for example, um, the address that we're going to read is from February 2nd, 1980. Uh, the letter that he wrote to Jimmy Carter, which is hosted on the website of the USCC's, USCCB, the uh, Catholic Bishops Conference website, um, that was written on February 17th, 1980, and then Romero was killed March 24th. So, like, in the span of basically, you know, less than two months, all these things are kind of going on. Um, and uh, we should say, too, so Romero, he was shot, as he said, mass, Um two extra things to maybe note about it. Um, his uh, vestments, bloodied vestments are like still um, on display. Like people make pilgrimage to them in El Salvador. And uh, Romero famously said, if I die, I'll be resurrected in the people of El Salvador, which is very true, I think. So that's one important piece. Um, he was canonized by Pope Francis not too long ago. And the other piece is uh, Matt mentioned that Roberto de Bisson was supported by the United States. He was a School of America's grad, I think. Um, he, uh, his son has continued, is still right now a political figure in El Salvador. And a lot of the U.S. politicians who supported de Bisson, like explicitly they supported him, have gone on to enjoy pretty easy careers. Uh, for example... Um, I think we talked about this on the Eisenberg episode, too, but uh, um, what is the guy's name who was the Venezuela special rapporteur under Trump? Um, Elliot Abrams. Um, Elliot Abrams famously uh, testified to Congress that Roberto Diabuson is great. <laughs> Not a bad guy. Um, a good one. And, uh, you know, that is a wildly stupid and evil thing for a person to say. But nevertheless, he did say it. And yeah, like I said, he was put in charge of uh, Venezuela under Donald Trump. So, you know, these kind of like villains are still around. And I think it's important to recognize that, like, I feel like sometimes people cast Romero's story back into the past. You know, like 1980 is a long time ago. It's like a lost world in some ways. But the fact is, like, these major players who are part of Romero's story are still around. And like the bad guys (laughs) are still around. Um, But the good guys are still around, too. Right. Like. Uh, as we learned when we had uh, Laurel on the podcast a while back, like the base communities are maybe different now, but they're not gone. And uh, just important to maybe recognize how close we are to these events as we sort of get into this uh, particular address. So I think that gives you a little bit of an idea of like Romero, what he's like, what he's kind of about. And also it gives you a little bit more context about El Salvador as a place in the 80s, um, in the late 70s. All really helpful context for making the following address make a lot more sense. So let's talk about the address a little bit here, and we can kind of lay out some of the big themes and talk about maybe the high points of it for us. The address here is called The Political Dimension of Faith from the Perspective of the Option for the Poor. And it's a really cool piece. I think um, it's pretty short. We'll definitely post it in the show notes. You can read it yourself if you want to. Um, But what I like about it is that since he's giving it in this like kind of drastically different context, like he's giving it in Belgium, right, which is certainly not El Salvador, um, and he he makes that clear, I think, in in the essay or in, in the address itself. Um, but because of that, I think a lot of like some of his thoughts become um, not decontextualized, but like you get these like sort of top level reads on them that I think are helpful without having to like um, get into the weeds too much about like what is going on in El Salvador. So, I mean, for a for a reader who is like not super familiar with the history, like me, this is a really helpful thing to kind of get into to see like. I mean, maybe the broad contours of the way that Romero thinks about politics and thinks about theology. So that's what you get in this is uh, some some of those big themes. Mm-hmm. So I think that there are at least three big themes that we can kind of pull out of this text. 
So one is that Romero suggests that there's like a hermeneutic of the poor as a way to like read the world for the church. We'll talk about what that means more in a few minutes. But I think it's a pretty big deal. He thinks that like basically if the, the church wants to really know the world and be kind of like a good actor in it, then it has to take up this position alongside the poor who know the socioeconomic factors of the world better than anybody else because they're constantly being acted on by them. Um, another big theme in this text is uh, about the relationship between religion and politics, which is something I always think is really fascinating and something that is, I think, more and more a pressing question of our times as the, um, you know, Christo-fascist right <laughs> continues to gain steam in the <laughs> United States. Um, definitely interesting. And uh, the way that Romero goes about it is obviously better than that. So get excited for it. And then I think the, the last thing that I, I think is really cool about this particular address is that, you know, he's he's writing from... Uh, the late 70s and into the into 1980 and he keeps talking about the church in El Salvador and how it's a lot like allying itself with the poor and how it's coming alongside the poor and how it's using the perspective of the poor to kind of like do its work in the world and it is such an interesting um, I think way to talk about the church because it looks drastically different than the church that I've ever seen in the United States and probably anyone's ever seen in the United States um, so anyways, I think it's also like it's one of those documents where you can see um, a better type of Christianity on display uh, for I mean, it's not perfect for sure. Right. I mean, there's always problems, but it's a it's a type of church that is like the type of church you really want to be a part of <laughs> or that you really wish you could see in the world. And I think that's cool. Right. So I think um, there's there's something about this essay, too, that gives you like permission to be a particular type of Christian. Um, you know, when you see all the reactionary forces of Christianity in the world, I think it's easy to like sometimes want to throw your hands about the whole thing and just say, you know, whatever, take it. Mm -hmm. But uh, when you read this essay, you hear about a type of church that is like worth being a part of. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, exciting. So we have those three big themes and I'm sure we'll probably pull out a few more. But um, yeah, th that's it. So let's just jump into it. Let's get to uh, Romero and like and the way he thinks of the poor as a type of like hermeneutic tool to understand the world. I feel saying saying like the poor is a hermeneutic tool makes it sound too academic-y, but I think it's it's important, right? Because um, Romero sees in the poor like a really like an essential perspective for the church that if the church wants to really you know do the work that the gospel tells you to do then you have to take up this particular perspective and uh, and and not like try to moderate it between, you know, some kind of class harmony. Um, so um, like Dean said at the beginning that Romero is not like a liberation theologian in the same way that like Leonardo Boff is a liberation theologian, definitely not in the way that Leonardo Boff is, is a liberation theologian. But I think what you'll see is like that shared spirit, especially with uh, Romero's particular uh, approach to the poor. Uh, yeah, well, I think it's also really interesting that uh, Romero feels confident enough to like speak from the perspective of the poor as well. Like you see some interesting ways that this shows up in the text. Sometimes he talks about what the church says to the poor and then other times he tries to articulate the vision of the poor. And I think like with a lot of theologians, I'm always very nervous when people speak in the name of the poor because it's like who are you to do that? <laughs> You're like a theologian. Um, but one thing that Romero does is he styles himself as a, a pastor. And that's actually how he opens the address is by saying he's not speaking as an expert or a political scientist. He's speaking as a, a person with a particular role to play in a Christian community. And I think that like Romero is one of those people who, when he says that he is like, you know, telling you what the poor think. It's like, yeah, I believe him. He's probably right. <laughs> that probably is what they think. Um, so just yeah. a, a neat way to maybe set up some of the context here too. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so here's the, the first uh, passage that we're going to work through. Our encounter with the poor has regained for us the central truth of the gospel. Namely, the word of God urges us to conversion. The church has to proclaim the good news to the poor. Those who, in this worldly terms, have heard bad news and who have lived through even worse realities. And hence, they also have good news to proclaim to the rich, that they too must become poor in order to share in the benefits of the kingdom with the poor. Um, I like this first part too, because it, um, I like it for two reasons, right? Because you, you always hear the good news to the poor, but uh, Romero is recognizing fully here that uh, the, the poor uh, have heard nothing but bad news their entire life, mm -hmm. but also that the poor have something to give in this conversation, right? Uh, they, have, they can proclaim the good news to the rich that they have to actually become poor. Um, a pretty good rhetorical turn. 
uh, to say the least. And uh, I think doing a lot of sort of like theological and uh, social justice types of uh, work in this passage. Uh, I don't know, Dean, how do you feel? Yeah, I agree. Um, I think it's great, too, that it is a theology that sort of takes aside like Romero is not being like, well, you know, we got the rich and the poor and God has maybe a preferential love for the poor, but we can't like get too, um, I don't know, crabby at the rich. Uh, Romero like threads that needle really well because I think he's like also not maybe speaking in too crabby a way at the, in this passage, but he is like making something very clear, right? That like the rich have to just stop being rich and that's sort of the the key. Um, they can't like maintain that position, which I think is a really important and, and courageous thing for Romero to say. Um, I think also like, you know, we've talked about this on the show in a number of other contexts, but the category of the poor is really interesting for kind of Christian Marxist dialogue in general. Like for Marx, the, the key category is the proletariat for liberation theology or more broadly, like, you know, the maybe sort of church of the poor you find in Latin America, the category is the poor, which is a more amorphous category, but also um, a pretty interesting site to like locate the the place where you find change. And we can talk more about it in a minute because Romero goes out of his way to sort of, I don't know, lean more into that category in a political way and not just like a totally nebulous way, but just kind of flagging it now, like it's a nice um, example of maybe what the rhetoric of like the poor and the rich in the church sort of affords Romero in a political way. Um, and it's important too that he's doing that because in El Salvador, the FMLN, the guerrilla movement, um, the Marxist movement is pretty significant. Um, and like Romero is trying to navigate, you know, how to find his own voice without like, completely becoming the spokesperson of the FMLN, which he definitely didn't want to do. Um, you know, for better or for worse, I guess people can judge that <laughs> however they want. But uh, he uh, he's kind of leaning into this category of the poor in a way that I think actually helpfully articulates like what's unique about a Christian dialogue about social justice. Yeah, that's actually, I think, a pretty helpful distinction to make, um, you know, because when Marxists talk about the workers, or the working class or the proletariat or whatever, right? It's because the working class, I mean, it's not because of like a moral importance necessarily, right? Like it's because the workers have like the, uh, they have the keys to capital if they really want to exercise that power, right? Mm-hmm. But the, when liberation theology talks about poor, the poor, it's talking about uh, like an ethical category. Um, you know, it's not, <laughs> the poor aren't important because they can topple capitalism. The poor are important because Jesus was poor, right? Mm-hmm. That's like the the difference, but you're right. It does, it does give a different, uh, a different texture to talk about um, social justice through. Mm-hmm. So maybe leaning into that a little bit more too. Um, a couple other pieces that Romero talks about. I said we we're going to talk about it in a minute, but we might as well just talk about it now. We're already there. Um, Let's do it. Romero says it is something new among our people that today the poor see in the church a source of hope and a support for their noble struggle for liberation. The hope that our church encourages is neither naive nor passive. It is rather a summons from the word of God for the great majority of the people, the poor, that they assume their proper responsibility, that they undertake their own conscientization, that in a country where it is illegal or practically prohibited at some periods more than others, that they set about organizing themselves. And it is support, sometimes critical support, for their just causes and demands. The hope that we preach to the poor is intended to give them back their dignity to encourage them to take charge of their own future. In a word, the church has not only turned toward the poor, it has made of the poor the special beneficiaries of its mission. Uh, so this is the, maybe like, you know, if Marx is like, you got to get the working class organized and that's who's going to overthrow capitalism, this is maybe Romero's alternative vision, his uh, manifesto moment, um, to say that it's the poor who have to find a way to organize themselves and the church's role is to sort of create hope in that situation such that the poor could feel like they have the dignity to, to become conscious of their situation, um, to, uh, uh, to take charge of their own future as he puts it. And I think that is a really interesting contribution of liberation theology generally, and something that you see come together in certain movements, as opposed to like pulling away from Marxist movements, for example, in Nicaragua, right? Where like, the theological category of the poor and the sort of Marxist currents in the Sandinista movement 
didn't really see each other as enemies, um, but found ways to dialogue. And I think Romero too here, I'm not like, I don't think he's setting up like a competing vision with like Marxism. I mean, he's not a Marxist. So like maybe he is doing that in some way or another, but I think his intention really is to try to like find a way of sort of making the poor a political category and not just like, you know, a sort of vacuous platitude or like a theological nicety or something like that. Like he's trying to be like what the church does is, it finds the poor and then it says like, look, you have like agency and you could do something here. You know, they might not all have their hands on like capital in the same way that the working class does. Uh, but also there's like, <laughs> there's more poor than proletarians in, <laughs> in El Salvador as well, you know? So um, important to just think through kind of how Romero is like activating that category. Yeah, I think that's good. I mean, it's right. Uh, Romero is not a Marxist. And if this is a competing vision with Marxism, it's not a very good competing vision because it's like, pretty much like it makes a pretty good um partner to marxism right mm-hmm. i don't know um it, it's not mutually exclusive i guess is what i'm trying to say yeah so far we've talked about the poor in this like kind of abstract way which is you know fine i mean again this is like an address that romero is giving to a <laughs> a university in europe so he's not like gonna get into the weeds like sociologically about it i guess um but i do want to kind of lay it out here that he does pay attention to like you know the poor as a category but not just like a vague sort of like blob i think he recognized too that like the poor in el salvador have like a like have a lot of skin in the game i was just talking a minute ago at the very i mean i guess at the beginning of the episode about the persecution that the catholic church faced and that's all true though uh later in the text romero kind of gives this other nod towards the types of persecution that other people are facing as well and it's worth, I think, pointing out here to because it's like the the poor are these like it, it is this character in, in the story, but like Romero, I think, recognizes rightly that the poor are like facing pretty serious persecution in the ways of the churches as well. So, I guess what, that's what I'm trying to say here is that like there, there's something real. There's there's more to the story than just like the the poor as like a uh, mm-hmm. an empty category. So Romero says, if all of this persecution happened to persons who are the most evident representatives of the church, you can guess what has happened to ordinary Christians, to the campesinos, to the catechists, to lay ministers, and to the ecclesial-based communities. There have been threats, arrests, tortures, and murders, numbering in the hundreds and thousands. And as always, even in persecution, it has been the poor among the Christians who have suffered the most. I think that it's it's important to lay this out because, man, it's, it's real. It's a real thing that happened. Um... I was reading this today, but I was also reading it alongside Penny Leno's book, um, The Cry of the People, which is a book that I think we've mentioned on this podcast a handful of times. We'll have to get around to doing a, a mm-hmm. real episode about it at some point. But the uh, the book opens so about the book opens with this really, I think, kind of hard to read but important to read narrative about a an Irish Catholic priest in Argentina who is like walking home one night with one of, um, I don't know, this woman that he goes to church with and like out of nowhere, they're arrested by a paramilitary group in Argentina and they are like subsequently tortured for like days on end, if not months. Um, the priest, because he's Irish, he gets like, um, he gets deported from the country and like has to go back to Ireland and, um, work through like the, the mental, disruption that this has given him in his life uh meanwhile the woman that he was like walking with who who was just like you know a regular church person uh they were like imprisoned for years after right and faced even even more um types of uh torture and like imprisonment and detention and all kinds of you know crazy stuff right and that's argentina and not el salvador and they're different places with different circumstances but all i'm trying to say here is that like um, fascists are willing to crack down on anyone who might speak out against them, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, it's it's worth really paying attention to those stories because, I mean, you know, whatever. Uh, it, the, this particular priest, like, he was like, a, he was a worker priest from uh, Ireland, which is something, but it's not like he was, like, out there, like, organizing a communist revolution or something. He was just a priest, like, in Argentina, mm-hmm. um, and that did not matter to the the paramilitary there. Just like it didn't matter to the paramilitary in El Salvador. And just like it, you know, doesn't matter to anyone in the United States whether or not you're really, um, you know, whether you're just a nice, like, human rights liberal or if you're really a communist, it does not matter to them. Fascists don't care. Fascists just want to kill you if you're going to speak out against them. 
Yeah, I mean, that's the lesson that you see in some kind of ironic ways, also in so many circumstances. Like I always think of the Philippines, you know, right now with something like red tagging, which is everywhere where the government will basically label somebody communist, whether they are or not, and then arrest them or, you know, harass them and so on. But uh, one very funny kind of inverse side of that is that it creates like odd friends <laughs> in ways that create enemies for the regimes as well. Um, which is something you saw all across Latin America, but also in the Philippines um, and elsewhere too, like I guess everywhere, everywhere there are fascists. <laughs> the, uh, the inverse side of fascists sort of being incapable of discriminating against their enemies or whatever is that like all of a sudden people who would have been anti-communist yesterday suddenly find themselves talking to communists because they're all like in the same boat anyway, <laughs> you know, like the distinctions sort of melt away under uh, the, the similarity of oppression. And I think that's also something that is harder maybe for people in the global North to understand, like, you know, the I'm with her liberals versus like the Bernie Sanders Democrats versus whatever your, whatever, whatever teen is out there with a ski mask at a rally or something, right? Like, um, at the end of the day, like none of that matters to like Ron DeSantis, Meatball Ron. Like he's uh, basically assuming they're all the same person at the end of the day. And, uh, you know, it's a challenge for the left to sort of create its own unified block. Um, but maybe like one gift, if people could harness it, would be recognizing that like <laughs> the the enemy thinks that you're a unified block. So you might as well like show up to a rally together or something. I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's hard to make common cause with uh, a certain class of liberal, at least. But um you know, for for a lot of folks, it's like a good lesson in overcoming sectarianism, because like where the rubber has hit the road in lots of situations around the world, um, it's been that recognition of unity that has been able to actually build an alternative to that. It's true. Ron DeSantis, at the end of the day, he's going to be scarfing down his pudding with his fingers and uh, <laughs> and uh, repressing everyone, uh, regardless of uh, whether or not they have a I'm with her bumper sticker or if they have a DSA bumper sticker in the back <laughs> of their car. Um, OK, so anyways, kind of circling back around to this to, to the theme of this section, right, that Romero thinks that the poor have a particular like perspective that is important for the church. And uh, this is uh, maybe a concluding thought that kind of gears toward that direction. Romero says, it's the poor who enable us to understand what has really happened. That's why the church has understood the persecution from the perspective of the poor. Persecution has been occasioned by the defense of the poor. It amounts to nothing other than the church is taking upon herself the lot of the poor. That's where they're at, right? You, If you want to understand the types of persecution that um, that the poor are suffering, like you have to kind of take up that perspective itself. And that's exactly what Romero says that the church has done in El Salvador. Not just like, um, not just like throwing in their lot with the poor, but also uh, Romero says um, actively defending the poor in in whatever way they can. So I, I think that's an important piece, right? You want to understand what this repression actually looks like and feels like, then you have to do it from this particular perspective of like the the lowest common denominator in society, right? People who have the um, who are the most vulnerable um, socially and economically. Yeah. And uh, I don't know, a, a good perspective, right? You want to know what's going on. You have to look at the people who are going to be hurt the most. Yeah, I think, too, that idea that um, it's a consequence of the church throwing in with the poor or taking upon itself a lot of the poor. I think that is significant. You know, Romero is obviously himself kind of it's like chilling to read that because he himself ends up paying that price. Right. Um, but it's important too to recognize it's not just like a global south problem there either. Like, um I was just thinking of the situation of uh, Bruce Johnson and um, Eugenia Johnson, the two pastors oh, of yeah. the, the United Methodist Church that became the People's Church that the Young Lords had taken over in Chicago. Um, we did an episode about that a long time ago, too. But, you know, this is the United States in 1969, and they were stabbed to death. And, like, they wouldn't have been if they hadn't... Um, you know, basically aligned themselves with a particular uh, group of people. Um, and you see that sort of persecution across the U.S. as well with, like, the way that people treat even, like, the plowshares movement or um, Catholic workers folks getting arrested and all that kind of stuff. Like, the at the end of the day, like, um, the, the persecution of Christians happens because Christians take up the side of the poor, not because they believe that, like, I don't know, Jesus is God or something. Right. And I think that's the narrative that also has to be dispelled that like <laughs> when Christians are persecuted, it isn't uh, it's not a culture war issue. Right. It's like 
actual persecution is always tied to political persecution, which is tied to things like class rule and, <laughs> and all the rest of it. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's, I guess, just kind of reiterating the point you made at the top of this episode, Matt, talking about persecution, but just to point out that, like, you know, it's not just like so-called underdeveloped countries that are sort of dealing with this. Like anybody who ends up throwing in with the poor in a really meaningful way is going to, you know, have a hard time because of it, I think, in some way or other. I think it's hugely important to really lay that out, exactly why Christians do face persecution. Um, I don't know. I mean, the listeners of this podcast are diverse people who are <laughs> have different backgrounds. But for me personally, um, I think that I first learned about Christian persecution in a very skewed way. Um, I don't know if this is the case for you either, Dean, but like right after Columbine happened, there's like this story circulating. I don't mm -hmm. even know if it's true. It might be like apocryphal, but that like uh, there was a, 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 a girl, a woman student, a female student, if you will, <laughs> um, who had, you know, a, a gun to their head and Columbine. And they were asking if they really believed in Jesus or something. And she said, yes. Right. And like, that's Christian persecution. That's what it really looks like. You know, people are going to persecute you because you believe in Jesus Christ as, as being the son of God. And, and like, that's clearly not true. I mean, maybe that happens in some places um, where particular types of like religious violence are more common. But like when we're talking about the United States, when we're talking about um, South America and North America, I, I mean, the historical examples are pretty clear. It's, it's not because people like believe in Jesus. That's like not the problem uh, for Christian persecution. It's because uh, people recognize the ethical like ramifications of believing in Jesus as also meaning they have to throw in with the poor or you have to mm -hmm. throw in with like, you know, the people who are most marginalized um, or even like, you know, throw in with with creation, with environment, like with, um, you know, water defenders or, or something like that. Right. Mm -hmm. that, that's why people face Christian persecution, not uh, for made up cultural reasons. Right. Yeah. I should clarify, too, like there are situations in the world where Christians do get persecuted just for being Christian, like whatever in India sure. or something like that. So like not to yeah. dismiss that those things do really happen and it is very bad. But yeah, in the United States, that's not what's happening. <laughs> it's a different situation. Christians are the ones persecuting other Christians in the United States. Yeah, an important, yeah, important clarification. Um, just because uh, you're a Christian and you have to recognize that trans people are real humans that do exist, that does not mean you're being persecuted, um, <laughs> right. which is which is news to, I think, a lot of Christians. Yeah, happy holidays, am I right? <laughs> that's right. So uh, the next big theme that we need to talk about here in this uh, in this address is the way that Romero kind of figures out the relationship between religion and politics, I think it's really interesting. Um, his way in is interesting. And he's writing this before uh, Ignacio Ayacuria wrote uh, The Crucified People. But you find a, a similar type of resonance, I think, between these two ideas, which, again, that shared spirit between Romero and liberation theology, even though they're not one the same necessarily. So Romero says this, because the church has opted for the truly poor, not the fictitiously poor, the church lives in a political world, and she fulfills herself as church also through politics. It cannot be otherwise if the church, like Jesus, is to turn herself towards the poor. So this is, I mean, just like a, a beginning statement here, but this is important because, like, if the church is going to do the things he's saying, right, or if the church is doing the things he's saying and throwing in with the poor in this, like, really serious way and kind of taking the poor's word for how the world works, uh, you have to recognize that that's already pretty political because, I mean, Poor people are are not natural. <laughs> it's not natural to to like wealth inequality is not just sort of like a state in nature or something, right? Because uh, poor is a category that is produced and only lives in relationship to the rich. So, anyways, I'll have to say um, if the church is going to take up that particular perspective, that means that the church is already kind of engaged uh, politically through the lens, right? The the moment that your church says that it has some type of option for the poor or that it wants to pay attention to the poor. It's engaged in politics, whether it likes it or not, which I think is um, important to recognize. I think even for like well-meaning liberal churches, mm -hmm. you know, they'll say something about the poor, but not necessarily think of themselves as, uh, you know, doing politics or being involved in politics. But whether they like it or not, they are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a good counterpoint even to the sort of, I guess, like form of neither right nor left stuff that you get in Christian discourse, which we've talked about on the show at length ad nauseum, I guess. But uh, yeah. one way that is kind of neat, maybe about how Romero tackles it is like, it's one thing to be mad about it as a left wing person. And I am mad about it as a left wing person to be like, <laughs> <laughs> these aren't the same. But I think Romero also is challenging that same sentiment from a different 
perspective or different point of view, which is to say, like, yeah, you can say that Jesus is outside the the left and right category or whatever. And you can even say that he's political because a lot of them will say that. But Romero is trying to be like, yeah, but like, how? <laughs> how? And how does the church like fulfill itself through politics is how he puts it, you know? And I think that's really important because a lot of Christians kind of get away with being like, yeah, Jesus, he's political, but like not the way that you think he is. And they just kind of yeah. leave it at that, right? It's a, a vague sort of appeal to depth that really is vacuous. But Romero is trying to say something more. And I think that comes out when he talks about sin. Um, he has a neat way of kind of parsing it out. He says, we know that uh, a sin is really mortal, not only in the sense of the interior death of the person who commits the sin, but also because of the real objective death that sin produces. Let us remind ourselves of a fundamental fact of our Christian faith. Sin killed the Son of God, and sin is what continues to kill the children of God. We see that basic truth of the Christian faith daily in the situation of our country. It's impossible to offend God without offending one's neighbor or sister. And the worst offense against God, the worst form of secularism, as one of our Salvadoran theologians has said, is, and here he does quote Aea Curia, but a, a different piece, uh, is to turn children of God, temples of the Holy Spirit, the body of Christ in history, into victims of oppression and injustice, into slaves to economic greed, into fodder for political repression. The worst of these forms of secularism is the denial of grace by the objectivization of this world as an operative presence of the powers of evil, the visible presence of the denial of God. And I think that is very good, very important. Um, it's that kind of like theological language, but that is saying something actually meaningful instead of like weaseling out of the complexities of a material situation. And I think that's what I like about Aikiria and Romero both is that for them, theology is not a way of like escaping politics, but it's a way of really affirming the complexity of the material and, and getting involved in it in a, in a unique way as a Christian person, right? Like, you know, even sometimes like I love Ernesto Cardinal. He's my fave hundred percent. But Cardinal, too, like, maybe I like him because I share with Cardinal a kind of impatience with theology. <laughs> like, Cardinal will be like, yeah, 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 here's some theological categories, some Christian stuff, whatever. At the end of the day, I don't know, like, you just got to, like, beat capitalism, <laughs> you know, like, um, and we'll kind of, like, talk about it with some great religious poetry and so on. But, you know, uh, Cardinal will admit that, like, he's got to be reminded every once in a while that he is a priest, you know. And I think what I what I like about Romero and Aikiria is they do have a, a kind of like thicker Christian identity that I think for me sometimes is really important to connect with and to feel like an actual Christian and not just like a guy reading about Christianity, you know, which is easy to turn into that even if you go to church. So um, anyway, all that to say, I think uh, what Romero is really giving us here is like a, a theological politics that has more going on in it than, uh, you know, the vague appeal to like Jesus being political. Yeah. I think it's so important. Well, okay. I'm, I'm sorry to bring it up on the podcast, but just a few weeks ago, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to do it. It's, it's our podcast. We know we want <laughs> just a few weeks ago. Uh, Twitter's favorite liberal pastor, Brian Zahn did tweet something that was very annoying. So annoying that he actually did delete it. Um, <laughs> but he was talking about how, um, you know, he's, he's gotten past the left and right distinction in politics. And that's been really liberating for him. And I hate that so much exactly for this, this very reason, right? Because just like Romero says, it's sin that killed Jesus and it's sin that kill that kills, you know, the world's children or whatever, all of God's children. And if you're someone like Brian's on and you're like, well, I just want to get beyond the left and right dichotomy because I don't know, that's how I, that's how I feel or whatever, for whatever reason you feel that way uh, because you want to transcend the dirtiness of politics or whatever. Like it's so insufficient because if you think that Jesus has something to say that is political, or if you think that Christianity has something to say that's political, like who is killing the children? How are you going to mm -hmm. get them to stop? <laughs> like you can't even answer the most basic questions if you want to transcend the left and right dichotomy uh, because you, you have to answer th those fundamental questions if you want to do politics, right? Who would you hold accountable to for, you know, the um, the mass death of like poor people that like, you know, who die from, you know, um, po poverty sort of caused reasons? How would you even do that? It doesn't make mm -hmm. sense. Brian's on. Uh, I know he listens. So that's why I'm saying it. Directly yeah, to him. Of course. Um, <laughs> yeah. OK. Sorry. I'll I'll stop. Well, wait, wait, wait. One other thing, though, on this left, right thing, you know, I think 
something that comes to mind too in an important way with respect to Romero's life is that at the end of the day, like one side is the side that murdered him and it wasn't the left. Like, I'm sorry. <laughs> like, <laughs> Oh no, you know, that's like, true. The guerrillas, you know, it's not to say that like every left guerrilla movement is blameless because that's not true. Like war is bad and left wing guerrillas do bad things and they should be held accountable for that too. Like, I think that's important. And uh, revolutionary movements that are good and have a moral character, they also do that, right? Like, that's a part of the story of Cuba. It's a part of the story of Nicaragua. Um, So it's not to, like, just say, well, this is a sort of purity test or something. But, like, at the end of the day, like, the people that Romero was ultimately fighting in a significant way when he's talking about politics are the right, the fascist right. Like, it's Daubisson that killed him. Uh, a fascist guy, a right wing guy with the support of, you know, first the the Democrats, for sure, Jimmy Carter, and then even more strongly, the Republicans. And, you know, the Democrats are also a, a right wing force in a kind of like global scale of a political agency or whatever. And I think it's just important to recognize that, like, getting beyond the right and left divide is like not like if you try to do that, you're just not going to understand why oscar romero was murdered like it just like prevents you from i guess having a an analysis of like what the real options are for getting out of that that situation of sin so anyway just to put a fine point on it like the right is who killed romero and the left is who was like fighting them at the time it's important to point that out it seems like an obvious note but you're right it is important to point (laughs) um because uh twitter pastor might not recognize it that's for sure okay uh, the last big theme that I want to pull out, I think, is maybe the most important one, um, and that is, um, okay, so Romero, throughout this entire address, he's talking about what the church in El Salvador is doing. And when I was reading that, I was having a very weird, like, alienated experience, because it's like, I've never heard of a church like this before. <laughs> um, the church that he's describing is one that I would very much like to go to, I'd like to be a part of, um, I would like to be a member of, uh, but it's not the one I'm familiar with, particularly. Uh, so I thought it might be interesting to think about the Church of El Salvador, the one that Romero is describing as a possible church, right? Like this is uh, this is the future that could be, and be- because it's a past that has been, mm-hmm. um, an important distinction, right? So uh, there's there's so much bad stuff in Christianity, um, stuff I don't like, worse than Brian's on for sure, and uh, I think it's really important to like find ways to express what it is you want out of this kind of religious arrangement Mm -hmm. and give yourself permission to be that type of person, even though the type of church that you see in the world sucks ass and it's bad. So in in this small portion of the podcast, we're doing some like, uh, (laughs) we're doing some mood boarding. We uh, are putting on together (laughs) these ideas of the church that we would like to see in the world. And uh, maybe we'll get there someday. Uh, Maybe we won't. Maybe be the Christian you want to be in the world. I guess what I'm trying to say. So um, here's Romero on uh, on some of these ideas uh, of what the church is. The world of the poor, with its very concrete social and political characteristics, teach us where the church can incarnate herself in such a way that she will avoid the false universalism that inclines the church to associate herself with the powerful. Love it. Yeah. The world of the poor teaches us about the nature of Christian love, a love that certainly seeks peace, but also unmasks false pacifism, the pacifism of resignation and inactivity. It's very good. Um, It's very good stuff. Uh, A church that is like, in the world, they recognize it's, it's doing politics at some level, even though it's maybe not like, you know, uh, it's not like completely in line with like the guerrillas fighting uh, the government. Uh, but it's not out of line with them either, which I think is an important distinction. Um, uh, it, this is definitely the, the type of church that you'd want to be a part of, though. Yeah, I agree. Um, keeping the train going, adding to our, our mood board, a vision board here. Um, I also really like what uh, Romero has to say about the, the church here in its own posture. He says, the world of the poor teaches us that liberation will arrive only when the poor are not simply on the receiving end of handouts from government or from the church. <laughs> Just wait, Jimmy Carter uh, and Ronald Reagan. But when they themselves are the masters of and protagonists in their own struggle and liberation, thereby unmasking the roots of false paternalism, including ecclesiastical paternalism. Uh, I like this in particular because, first of all, it's a great roundabout way of saying uh, you should cease the means of production. Um, But also uh, the idea that you would like identify that the poor shouldn't be on the receiving end of church handouts is really important. Um, It's pretty routine, I think, that like churches rightly 
provide all kinds of services in societies under capitalism where like people need them, you know, like uh, food kitchens and whatever, um, secondhand shops and all that kind of stuff. And they have to do that because capitalism has all these cracks that need to be filled and the church fills them. But it creates this weird like symbiotic or parasitic relationship where like governments then also do just kind of rely on churches to do it. And churches kind of also rely on the government to like not fix that problem (laughs) so that they can like continue to do an important ministry or something. And I think it is significant, like, you know, in in the most extreme cases, like it's been a way for the church to even argue against like state intervention. Um, the case I have in mind in particular is uh, in Quebec. Um, the church was basically responsible for delivering everything from like schools to hospitals to social services. And it wasn't until the 1960s that there was a pretty rapid and massive um secularization campaign that basically uh, nationalized a lot of those services in important ways. But the idea was like, yeah, the church is just kind of there to, you know, paternalistically like give to the kids all the stuff that they need. And I think what Romero is trying to say is like the church has to give that up. And also like people should just be treated like adults, including the poor. (laughs) And like, you know, they should be able to build a society the way that they want to and empowered to do so. And I think that's a really good, important note for churches in general to understand. Yeah, absolutely. The Quebec example is such a high level and interesting thing. Um, I When I read that piece, I thought about the endless conversations I've had with people at my church about, like, what do we do about the homeless people sleeping on our steps? And it's like, <laughs> you know, it's like, how, how do we provide them with the things that they need? And it's like, well, you don't really need to provide them with anything. You need to give them the space to, like, do what they need to do themselves or for them mm-hmm. to figure it out themselves. Which is a, a really hard idea for churches to uh, to get in on because um, you know it's it's our building they think it's our it's our this it's our that and never thinking of the um, the poor as sort of like protagonists like Romero mm-hmm. says that's that's wrong you need to shift your brain um, mm-hmm. the people sleeping on your steps are there seven days a week and you're only there on Sunday so <laughs> get off your high horse. <laughs> Um, There's also a a nice piece, as we're adding to this here, where Romero says, uh, the real world of the poor also teaches us about Christian hope, Uh, a tough topic these days. The church prepares a new heaven and a new earth. She knows, moreover, that no sociopolitical system can be exchanged for the final fullness that is given by God. But she has also learned that transcendent hope must be preserved by signs of hope in history, no matter how simple they may apparently be. Um, This one's great for your, like troublesome christian um like uncle who at thanksgiving is always like well i don't you know capitalism communism they're all the same who cares i'm just like you know waiting to go to heaven um pie in the sky by and by uh god will sort it all out you know it's like there's nothing kind of going on here that would really make any difference uh i think romero is great because he's like yeah 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 of course you know no political system is really like the fullness of god's presence but anyway like also, if you're going to have this transcendent hope, you do have to like materialize it on this side of history. I think that is a, a nice way to maybe like even find some points of contact for talking with people who like are not going to readily agree with like an Ernesto Cardinal, but like, you know, Romero maybe encourages them to, you know, follow a thought a little bit further. All right. Let's, this is the conclusion of the address. And I think it's good. <laughs> it instructs Romero says, every Christian used to say Gloria Dei vivens homo. The glory of God is the living person. We can make this more concrete by saying Gloria Dei vivens pauper. The glory of God is the living poor person. From the perspective of the transcendence of the gospel, I believe we can determine what the life of the poor truly is. And I also believe that by putting ourselves alongside the poor and trying to bring them to life, we shall come to know the eternal truth of the gospel. So for Romero, this is kind of like the concluding point because, um, he thinks that the the existence of the poor, the experience of the poor is like the most instructive thing to the church and to ignore it would be to, to ignore the gospel. And if you really want to see what the gospel is about, you have to kind of take this perspective on. And uh, so much so that he thinks it's like the um, like the operating logic of Christianity is to like figure out the the life of the poor and how to be a part of that. Again, not a church I've ever been a part of, but man, it's a, it's a compelling vision. I think it's great. Um definitely putting that one at the top of the mood board um it's the church you want to see in the world absolutely yeah get everybody at your church at the end to be like uh gloria day vivens popper 
Um, just start saying it to people and see how they react. Um, put it on a piece of paper. You can slip it to people in the pews. Uh, everybody should make make things more concrete by just saying that. I think that's the way to start. I think so, too. I mean, it's important because I don't think that I, I feel like it'd be hard for a church in the United States, even a liberal one, to really articulate this as a, it's like central vision. Um, and mm-hmm. that's too bad. Um I think that's really bad. It's it's a failure. It's hard to see the gospel apart from that. I think for me particularly, but um, it's it's definitely the church that uh, I would like. I would like to see. Yeah, me too. Well, you got to build it. Yeah, I guess I guess you got to. You can't just join another denomination. This denomination doesn't exist. <laughs> um, <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah. Well, um, all right. The is real. <laughs> the class struggle is real. At the end of the episode, um, we're we're just we're now just past um, Romero's feast day. It was yesterday, but um, what's your what's your takeaway? I don't know. Like, what do you think about this guy? What I, here's even a bigger question. Maybe maybe to to meditate on here for a second. Uh, not being the type of Catholic that um, Romero was, what do you do on feast days? What are you supposed to think about? And like, um, I didn't even really feast yesterday. Um, after done talking, I'm I'm definitely going to go eat some chips so I can kind of maybe count that. But what am I supposed to do apart from just eat the big bag of chips? Yeah, it's a great celebration. It's a festival day. Um, it's a time to um, celebrate the life of that particular person. Um, so there's often like special masses or uh, actually development of peace. The folks that I spend a lot of time with <laughs> um, did a, a Romero mass Um previously not this year but in previous years um and uh it's a good sort of excuse i guess to think through like what the life of that person means for us today i think it's really special to be able to have a feast day for saint oscar romero and one that's also tied to his assassination his martyrdom um for me uh i've joked about it as the feast day of anti-imperialism because it's like you know you when you have like a feast day for whatever St. Francis of Assisi, you're like, yeah, yeah, I'm going to think about, you know, I don't know, the nativity and all the cool stuff that he said about the moon and whatever. But when it comes to uh, Romero, it's like, yeah, you want to remember these important sort of things that he said and stood for. But you also want to remember like why he got murdered. And I think that is a special thing to have in a church calendar because it's like it's so contemporary. It doesn't feel as alien. And like I said, like, his the person who ordered his murder like his son is a major player in politics right now in el salvador or like elite abrams is still floating around writing op-eds every once in a while that appear in like major newspapers and you know like we are celebrating the feast day of this person who's dead because of them and i think that kind of like contemporaneity for me at least is really like unsettling (laughs) like whenever that comes around i'm always like whoa you know, we're still in it. And the church kind of has marked out this day to basically celebrate like a victim of American imperialism. I think that is like important to to sort of frame that there's a space in the calendar to do that in a liturgical way. Man, uh, how recent this all is, is very mind blowing. The more you say it, the more it's hitting me. <laughs> I'm thinking about it a lot. All right. Well, that sounds good. So you can eat your chips, but also say whatever the anti pledge of allegiance is. <laughs> yeah, it's a five iron frenzy song, and uh, I'll definitely sing it a little bit. That's great. Thanks for listening to the Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash the Magnificast. If you support us on Patreon, you get access to our behind the paywall podcast, which will be coming out soonish, probably. Just just wait for it. It's gonna be great. You're gonna love it. You also get access to our secret behind the paywall Discord ch- channel where we talk about recipes and the Pope and his big coat and uh, all kinds of other great things. Lots of good memes. It's good. You're going to love it. Once you're part of it, get in the mix though. And don't sit this one out because I don't know. Just do it. It's great. That's get all. in the That's mix though is, is a great tagline. Get in the mix though. Uh, <laughs> come to our youth group. Uh, all right. Uh, thanks for listening guys. Um, we definitely appreciate it. Our intro music is by Amari Armstrong. Our outro music is by Logical Spoon. And we'll see you next week. I don't want to get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven 
come to earth and there won't be no church We'll meet down by the riverside There we'll swim with all creation Never get tired, never bored Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord Jackson, keep your hoods up, you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late. Jackson, you keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind, a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon. So come on now, it's still early, at least I would have.